Well, it's been almost six weeks since those devastatingly powerful earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria. The combined death toll now stands at more than 55,700 confirmed deaths. And unfortunately, as so often happens, much of the media focus has moved onto other stories already. Well, today we're going to bring our focus back to that region, which is now in the recovery process, whatever that fully means. According to UNICEF, 4.6 million children in Turkey were affected by the quake and a further 2.6 million in Syria. Of particular concern is the fate of children orphaned or at least separated from their parents. Harrowing footage has emerged from a hospital in Adana in Turkey of babies and children too young to know their own names or to understand the fate of their missing parents and nurses unable or unwilling to explain to older children that their parents are dead. Well, the situation in Syria is understandably even tougher, as we'll hear now from Catherine Achilles, who can bring us up to date with both places. Catherine's part of the Syria Response Office in Amman in Jordan for Save the Children. Hello there. Hi, Geraldine. I mean, this week, the Syrian civil conflict also entered its 13th year of fighting. The, the earthquake therefore just compounded what's an utterly dire humanitarian situation there in most of the country. Are there any sort of green shoots there that you can point to or not? There are very few green shoots at this point. In six weeks after the earthquake struck, um, children are still living amongst the rubble. They're living in tents um, or in overcrowded shelters where people who have simply nowhere else to go are crowded. It's been windy and raining um, again as we come to the end of the winter. Children have lost basically everything they owned and they owned precious little before because of the because of the legacy of the of the crisis over the last 12 years and so when we speak to children in tents and in these collective shelters they tell us that they just want the smallest things they want their teddy bears back they want their school certificates they want to go back to school they're desperate to build a bit of normality and what we hear from parents is that they're worried that their children aren't smiling anymore that those times that children could just be children have gone and children are just very fearful about what the future holds. They're worried that there'll be another earthquake and and there's little that we can point to that gives them a sense of, of optimism for the future when there's so much to be done still. Well, what about the schools? Because that is always critically important. Um, are they getting, are they being set up again or not quite yet? Yeah, so thousands of schools were damaged in the earthquake. And so the, the race is really on to assess if they're, if they're safe for children to, to go back. So where they are safe, children have been able to resume learning. But the challenge is that many children have been displaced from their homes. And that means that they're now living quite far away from their original schools. And so making sure that schools have capacity to take in more children, that we can get them back and that we can support them with extra lessons and extra classes to help them catch up on, on the learning that they've lost over the last few weeks is going to be really critical as we move forward. Do you have a clearer picture of the numbers of children orphaned or separated from their parents? First of all, Syria and then maybe Turkey, if you've got a clue there. The numbers are very difficult to ascertain um, and the work to do that is still ongoing. There are... Um, a lot of children who were who are still with community members or trusted adults, so that they are they don't necessarily look like they're separated because they're in the extended family network, but they've lost their immediate family. So we're working with specialised partners and agencies to make sure that we can identify those children, make sure that they've got a safe living environment with the adults around them, and that those adults and families are provided with the support they need to care properly for those children. And what if you? 
don't have any close living relatives and you can't find them, what do you do then? So what has happened in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake is it's often the neighbours and the extended communities that children are living in that have taken them into shelter. Um, they are the ones who who dug the children out of the rubble. They are they are caring for them with the little resources that they have. And what we do in those circumstances, we work with those communities to to get the basic information about children, their names, their age, who their parents and families were, and then we we do tracing. We try to identify um, based on the the knowledge that those neighbours might have, um, where they might have other relatives, and we try to to go into those communities and find those relatives and see if they're willing and able to take children in. So it's a long process. It's a very detailed process. Um, a lot of assessments to make sure that children will be safe with their extended family, that they're safe in their current living environments, and that we can we can try to make sure that they have some degree of contact with family um, wherever they are. I mean, what an incredible job. I mean, this is real contact tracing work as has happened uh, in the aftermath of wars and, of course, during aspects of the pandemic as well. It, it must be very slow and time-consuming and frankly, you know, the mistakes could be made, couldn't they, about the sorts of people you're allowing children to go and stay with? And at the heart of this is children's well-being and safety. So that safeguarding element of this is taken incredibly serious by actors on the ground. Um, we do... When we're tracing family, those assessments are ongoing to make sure that those places and those families are safe for children to go into and that those families in turn have the resources they need to take in extra extra children. This is an incredibly difficult living environment for everybody. I mean, this is 12 years of crisis and almost everyone in earthquake affected areas will already rely on some degree of humanitarian assistance to survive. And so when we're asking them to take in family members, extended family members, we have to make sure that they have the resources and the support that they need to, to make sure that those children have food to eat, that they have warm clothes with the end of the winter, that they do have the resources to be able to send them to school if they're school-aged children, and that children in turn understand what's happening to them, understand that um, that they have the types of support, that they have the mental health support that they're going to need to process what has happened to them, not just in the in the earthquake, but but over the course of their of their lives to date. And are you talking about Turkey as much as well as Syria, or because that's a very different entity, isn't it, Turkey? Yeah, in Turkey, the authorities are leading the way in terms of making sure that children who are unaccompanied or separated are are supported and have access to to the resources they need, as well as doing that family tracing element. I mean, I, I wonder whether there's any move to allow international fostering or adoptions. We've got a very big Turkish diaspora in Australia, for instance. Uh, have you heard of anything like that? So we are aware that many people have reached out and, and given very generous offers to take in children and have been very personally moved by the images they've seen coming from, from the earthquake. It is our our preference and best practice to make sure that children remain with their immediate families or extended family networks wherever possible. And so for that reason, we really try to prioritise the tracing element and making sure that families can take in children safely before we look at uh, issues like adoption and fostering. I mean, one of the biggest concerns, obviously, for unaccompanied children must be kidnapping and and trafficking. I mean, have there been any reports of this happening? I know nobody wants to talk about this, but we just know that there are risks here in, in the aftermath of such, you know, extraordinary tragedies like this. 
In Syria, we take it extremely seriously as a risk. What we are focused on now is making sure that we can trace and identify unaccompanied and separated children so we know where they are, making sure that where they're old enough, they have access to information about who they can reach out to or what they should do in the event that they are approached or they, they feel at risk, and ensuring that children's families and the networks that they're staying in have those resources to keep them safe, to keep them warm, to keep them in their families so that we're not exposing children to, to risks, both of, of potential trafficking and kidnapping, but also things like child labour and children being forced to drop out of school and go to work to help to support those families in the future. Does that mean that some of them, to be safe, particularly those really little ones we were talking about earlier, um, who don't even know what their names are, it really, it makes you think, doesn't it? Would they go to orphanages that you manage and control, facilities that you can be sure of? The most important way of keeping those children safe is is extended kinship care. So we really focus on trying to identify who those children are. In Syria, we're very fortunate that a lot of the time, um, neighbours and and the communities around those children do know the names of their parents, do know who those children are, and so that is has been really critical for us in making sure that we can then initiate that tracing. But yes, if it's not possible for children to go into those types of care, then they need to be in safe safe environments, and that can include orphanages and institutional care if there are no other options. Mm. Gee, this must be pretty tough work, uh, Catherine. Yeah, do you have to pace yourself? It is, but I feel very inspired every day because we work with incredible local partners and local organisations on the ground in Syria who themselves were profoundly affected by, by the earthquake. They lost family members, they lost their homes, they lost everything. And the day of the earthquake, they were calling Save the Children, telling us that they were ready to work and ready to respond. And they were using the stocks that we had in the northwest of Syria already to provide blankets to get tents up and running so that people had warm places to sleep because it was extremely cold and raining the night that the earthquake struck. And their courage and resilience in the face of so much hardship and and losing everything again, I think, is a call to action for all of us to stand in solidarity with them and make sure that they can do this vital work of, of helping families to recover and rebuild their lives. Look, just finally, Save the Children is asking the Australian government to establish a standing humanitarian exemption on sanctions so that more aid can be delivered. This is in Syria we're talking about, without the current delays. Why, why is this needed? How would it help? Sanctions can have a really profound impact on our ability to provide assistance because they can create very long delays for us in being able to meet needs in a rapid emergency like an earthquake. Uh, we need to get specific licenses for certain types of activities. Um, our banks can often be quite resistant to transferring money into the places that we need to get it. So into Syria um, can often be very challenging and standing exemptions allow us to to work effectively. They allow us to get resources as quickly as possible in the immediate aftermath of things like earthquakes that we're not waiting weeks or potentially months for permissions to be able to, to, to work. We can start from day one and we can ensure that we provide assistance to children. And the, life, the exemptions and the licenses that we've seen from other countries have allowed Save the Children to be working on the ground since day one of this response. And they have made a, a huge difference in the assistance that children have have had to keep them warm, to keep them dry, to make sure that they've got warm food um, to eat every day has only been possible because we have seen the willingness of some donors to, to relax those, those um, sanctions for mm. us. 
And so it's really critical that others, including Australia, do the same so that we are not risking children's lives both now and in the future. Well, Catherine Achilles, uh, uh, good luck to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Catherine's from Save the Children Base in Amman. It's part of the Emergency Action Alliance that the ABC is supporting. And you can find more information on how to donate at abc.net.au slash gives. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.